The reading this morning is taken from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to see you here. Hello to those online. So I'm going to be up front. I really struggled with this passage. I don't know. Well, I do know why. This is one of the most famous stories John 3.16, the classic memory verse, 
Anyone who's had any interaction with Sunday school, I'm certain at some point you will have been forced to go home and remember this passage. And it has baggage. And I really struggled with that this week. So what I'm bringing this morning, I'm afraid, is not a foregone conclusion. It's not an answer. It's not a, a certainty. It's a kind of a wandering and a meandering and a questioning. And I hope you'll come with me. And I hope that perhaps later we can have a chat about what you think about it. I think as we come to this passage, what's helpful is to always under, understand the context of what's happening. So we're going through the kind of narrative lectionary at the moment. We've seen Jesus's interactions with different groups. Last week we had him turning over temples, uh, the tables at the temple um, and a clash with those that were in authority. And the last few verses of the passage, the, the chapter before John 3, it says this, when he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about him, for he himself knew what was in everyone. So there were people who were starting to believe in Jesus because of the things that Jesus was doing, so the signs, the miracles. But he didn't trust them. He didn't trust that conversion because of what they had seen. Because Jesus knows. He knows us. He knows our hearts. And so you come to this story and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes in the night, in the dark. And he states with authority and some might argue arrogance that he knows that Jesus is from God because he's doing all these signs. And yet we already know that Jesus that means nothing to him. Like, I, he doesn't care because he sees straight to the heart. And we see this response happening. Jesus says, well, that doesn't matter. And he starts talking in this ambiguous way. He undermines the certainty with which, which Nicodemus is coming. And to me, that is so, it's just so Jesus, you know? I don't know how many of you have come to a passage with a, an understanding of what this passage means and then you read it again for the hundredth time and you're like, oh, I'm looking at this a completely different way now. Just when I think I've got God figured out, stuff shifts. Nicodemus sees that God is with Jesus, but he misses the point that Jesus is the very essence of God, is the presence of God with us. He's confident and Jesus straight away just pulls the rug out from underneath him. You can't see the kingdom without being born from above. So you don't get it. The kingdom of God is not seeing signs and going, oh, this person's clever, let's follow them. It's not thinking that you have the answer. Which is very reassuring considering how I've been feeling about this sermon. And the character of Nicodemus is, one, one commentator describes it beautifully, is he is stubbornly ambiguous. Is he a genuine seeker? Is he sneaking in there at night because he's afraid of what other people think? Is he sneaking in at night because he has an ulterior motive? 
Is he deliberately ignorant and obtuse, or is he actually ignorant? Is he confused, or is he being combative and um, confrontational? What is going on here? Is this someone to be trusted? Or someone to be held with suspicion? Lots of people, there's a lot of misunderstanding in John. There's a lot of people where that seem to encounter Christ and not quite get it. I mean, the, the disciples are classic examples of not quite getting it, even though they're the ones that are standing next to Jesus the whole time. One commentator believes that Nicodemus is actually there as a representative of the Pharisees. The reason that he's coming at night is because he's been sent by the others. And there's something in the grammar that gives a hint to this, that when he says, we know, he's talking about not just himself, but the people that he's coming from. But what we see is Jesus interacting with him as an individual. He doesn't care where he's come from. He doesn't care what he thinks he knows. He's meeting Nicodemus where he's at for the sake of Nicodemus. And they have this back and forth and this interplay. But essentially Jesus turns around and says, well, this is not about what you know. It's about how you experience this. What matters now is your response to this encounter, this experience with me. He talks about the spirit and about the wind and about the unfathomable, unfathomable, ineffable things of the divinity, of, of the divine. The stuff that isn't easily explainable. What's interesting is Nicodemus's story here is a, essentially an outworking, a, a practical outworking of the kind of abstract description that we get in John 1. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of flesh, but of the will of or of the will of man, but of God. So we see this is a practical outworking of this abstract idea. Here is Nicodemus, one of Jesus' own, who doesn't get it, who doesn't see him. And Jesus is here for the world, for everyone. And this idea that we are not to just be born of blood and of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, to be born from above. And this is where I come to the bit where I really struggled. I love the NRSV because it talks about being born from above, which is a different phrase to being born again. But I don't know how many of you normally have heard this passage where it's talking about being born again. And again, whether that pings anything in you. I don't know how many times as a teenager I went to the front to be prayed for so that I could become a Christian because I was afraid that I hadn't done it properly the last time. And this, and to be honest, that kind of fits with my theology now. Of, to be honest, every day we need to be born again and again and again and again. But at that point, that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't why I was going. At that point, I was going because I was afraid that I was still in darkness, that I was going to perish. 
And so I have some baggage with this passage. Because we can't escape the judgment that is here. It talks about, there is judgment here. The light is judgment. And I have heard so many Christians talk about that basically if you don't believe, then you're going to hell. But I don't think, well, I don't want to say I don't, I don't want to say I know because that has certainty that I am uncomfortable with. I hope, I have a deep and profound hope that eternal life is not about salvation, of getting into some gated community when I die. But eternal life is about now. It's about being in God's presence now, being part of God's family now, being part of God's community, being in the light, being seen, being loved, being held right now. And being able to go out and reflect that light to others. We can't get away from judgment in this passage, but when you look at it, you realize that the judgment does not hold condemnation within it. The judgment is the light coming into the world, and that light brings freedom. I wanted, I want, I think as I have moved towards a more liberal, I guess, for want of a better word, approach to my faith, I have wanted to ignore this passage, and I probably haven't looked at it for a number of years because of the judgment in it. And yet then coming to it anew this week, recognizing that the judgment that I experienced and that I grew up with was not the judgment of God, but the judgment of other humans, of other people. It was human judgment that made me go up again and again and again. It was human judgment that held me in fear. And that still happens now. Christianity seems to be known these days for pointing the finger about who is in and who is out. My biggest problem with this passage is because I see the church in it, Christians in it, blocking the light from those that just want to be near Christ. Blocking the light from those who are of a different class, a different economic background. Blocking the light from our LGBTQ plus siblings. Blocking the light from our black and brown siblings. Blocking the light from anyone whose life experience is different from their own. My discomfort of this passage is what other Christians have made of it. And what I have made of it in the past. I have blocked the light from others, casting my own shadow, condemning. Denying my own darkness and the shadows that I was casting. This passage does not ever say, if you don't believe you're going to hell. It doesn't say that. I might suggest that it infers that if you continue to live in darkness, then you're likely to continue living in a hell of your own creation. 
or through your actions cause others to live in hell too. But I can no longer ignore this passage. I have to step into the light, into freedom, into God's judgment, where there is no condemnation. There is no shame. All are loved. This light is for the whole world. A world free from shame, from condemnation, from human judgment. That is what the light is. It says that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a, like, um, like the serpent in, with Moses. And for those of you that are not aware of that illusion, it's in Numbers. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole. And whenever, the serpent, whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. It's this idea that if we look at Christ, if our view and our orientation and our direction is towards Christ, then we can step into that eternal life. We can. And I use this phrase carefully, be saved. Saved from the darkness and from judgment and from pain. The world hated God and God responds with love. Step into that light. Jesus is there, lifted up for all that we might live, that we might have eternal life now. So let's come back to Nicodemus. Again, going back to the context of this passage, the story, and without wanting to preempt my colleague's sermon next week, tune in if this piques your interest, is another very well-known story of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. These two stories stand parallel to each other, next to each other, in stark contrast. Nicodemus, a man, he is named, he is powerful. He's sneaking around at night. A woman, unnamed, cast out. He encounters Jesus at midday. Sun's at its highest point, lots of sunlight, you get the point. You have these two things next to each other. Darkness, light, unbelief, faith. Two different reactions to, to Christ. It cannot be a coincidence that these two things are put next to each other. And we see that we have two different reactions. Because if we come back to Nicodemus, this is not actually the end of his story. And I don't know if you noticed, but you never actually see Nicodemus have a conversion moment or a, a turning or repentance. He doesn't say this in his prayer. At any point in that passage, he doesn't come up to be saved. He, in fact, the passage shifts its focus from Jesus talking to Nicodemus to talking to the audience, to talking to us. But he appears later in the gospel. This is not the end of his story. He appears two more times. Once with the other Sanhedrin guys, and he challenges them to say that, you can't just condemn this guy. You need to give him a fair trial. And then they give him a trial, fair trial. And he's crucified anyway. And then he's there again. The, the third time he appears is with Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus. So there's definitely a shift 
in this person of Nicodemus. There is a, a direction that has changed. He is, he's not sneaking around at night anymore. He is challenging his peers. He even responds in a loving way when he sees Jesus killed on the cross. He's still a Pharisee. He's still, he's still part of the Sanhedrin. He's compromised. He's complicit. He's not the Samaritan woman who, when encountered Jesus, ran back home and become that classic evangel- brand new Christian, becomes the brand new evangelist and telling everyone about how great Jesus is. Nicodemus is still part of the system that ultimately condemns and kills Christ. I start to get uncomfortable at this point, again, reading this passage, realizing that I, I can't identify myself with the Samaritan women as much as I'd like to. I definitely identify with Nicodemus, though. Being part of an institutional structure that is perhaps a little bit corrupt and a bit abusive at times, not specifically Bloomsbury, but let's say church with a big C. How much hurt and pain and death has been caused by this institution that I'm a part of. My discomfort comes back at this point. Nicodemus is compromised. Perhaps he feels that being part of this system is better than not being a part of it. At least Jesus did get a trial. If he wasn't there, he probably wouldn't have even got a trial. It's interesting, when you prepare a sermon, you do your reading, you write your notes, but you invariably end up having conversations about this passage with other people. And I've done that this week. And one of the conversations I had was um, with um, a close friend, friend, and their response was, oh, it's Nicodemus. It's like, how to be a radical Christian. I was like, I hope it's not. (laughs) I I don't know. Would I call Nicodemus? A radical believer? I don't know that I would. So what does that say about me? Nicodemus is there at the end. Nicodemus buries Jesus. He is in that space of ultimate darkness. When the tomb is closed and it feels like all hope is gone. What does that mean? Yet, that is also the space when the brilliant light that has no condemnation breaks through. Salvation, eternal life, hope, freedom, love appears there first. What does that mean? Nicodemus has clearly shifted his direction from being someone who is sneaking around trying to arguably trip Jesus up in some way to someone who is responding in a loving and respectful way. So what does that mean? I don't think this passage is a blanket commandment to believe or die. I believe that God's judgment 
a judgment of no condemnation is a universal one for everyone. And the thing about light is that it gets everywhere. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, you look at the night sky, that's light from billions of years ago coming and hitting our eyeballs. And that's just amazing. Like light gets everywhere. It's pesky like that. If Jesus is the light, not some bronze serpent on a stick that you actually have to be in the line of sight of, but if Jesus is the light that is held up, then that light is cast everywhere. There's no hiding from it unless you are deliberately turning yourself away. Unless you are deliberately trying to cast your shadow over someone else. Nicodemus seems to inhabit this grey in-between space. And I feel like I do too. But that doesn't mean that he is condemned. And it doesn't mean that I am either. But reading this story, I think what I realised is that I... First of all, no one else's salvation is my business. No one else's salvation is any of my business because there is no way I can know what is going on with someone and the second thing is that I have a deep and profound hope that I am in the light even though I feel like I am massively compromised and complicit not just within the church but in everyday life within the systems of this country of capitalism, within the systems of white supremacy, within the systems that keep others out and keep those that are different down. Those of us that have intersections of privilege are held up and those that have intersections of marginalization are pushed out. Yet that light shines on all of us and that is my hope. But my call is to recognize that I am part of this system. And the challenge for me is that I need to keep reorienting myself back towards the light, back towards Christ. I'm not the good, I'm not the Samaritan woman. Sometimes it might feel like that. And there are parts of myself that have definitely been oppressed and cast out at times. But I recognize that I have privilege and I have a platform. And so God's light has no condemnation, but I hope that it keeps me accountable. And the question I want to finish with is... Where do you identify yourself? Where do you see yourself? If like me, you see yourself more with Nicodemus, which way are you facing at the moment? This week is the week of prayer for Christian unity. So I've taken the Uniting Lord's Prayer, sorry, the third time today, 
as the format for our prayers this week. Loving God in heaven, who knows us through and through, accepts us, loves us, and cares about our daily lives. We pray for those who, through circumstances of their lives, feel that nobody cares. May they come to know that there is a loving God. For those who are struggling with physical or mental illness, for those who are mourning, may they have an awareness of the love of God. Hallowed be your name. Despite your name not always being respected and often used as a swear word, may we not be ashamed to honor your name and acknowledge our allegiance to you amongst our friends and acquaintances. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom is the antithesis of much we see in the world around us today. And so we pray for peace instead of war and aggression, especially as Holocaust Memorial Day is approaching this week, and we realize what depths mankind can sink to. We pray for kindness instead of hate and generosity instead of self-centeredness. We pray that the way we live our lives may not be a barrier to God's work in the world. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Lord, show us when our individual and collective wills conflict with your will. We are conscious, particularly as our church meeting approaches, that we need to know your leading and the way forward for Bloomsbury at this point in our church's history. Give us today our daily bread. We pray for the physical and spiritual necessities of our daily lives. In a world of inequality, where some have too much food and others hardly enough to stay alive, may we shop and eat wisely. We pray for the homeless and for those struggling financially in our country. May government, local authorities and faith groups come together and work out solutions for this dilemma. Forgive us our sins. Lord, forgive us our sins of omission when we don't give you the time in our lives that you deserve or care for others as you would want us to. Help us not to judge others harshly and to be tolerant of those whose values and lifestyle are different from ours. As we forgive those who sin against us, Lord, we have the ultimate privilege of having our sins forgiven in Christ. Help us, therefore, to forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, there are so many areas of temptation that the media bombards us with. Help us to identify the things that distort God's plan for the world and have the courage to stand against them. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, 
joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, creator, redeemer and sustainer, be with us all today and forevermore. Amen.